This is Fresh Ed, a weekly podcast that makes complex ideas in educational research easily understood. I'm your host, Will Brem. Hundreds of billions of dollars are spent on international aid each year. Most aid providers undergo periodic evaluations to assess their support. Have their policies worked? What priorities have guided their aid? And what practices have been effective? With such large sums of money circulating in the evaluation process, an aid evaluation industry has emerged. Formal evaluations are undertaken by quote-unquote experts who are hired by companies that bid on evaluation contracts. Sometimes universities themselves bid on these same contracts. And professors navigate this tricky terrain of research for hire. Many of Fresh Ed's listeners have likely participated in an evaluation of an aid project. I know I have. My guest today, Professor Joel Samoff, thinks it's time to rethink evaluations from conception through method to use. Joel Samoff is a consulting professor in African studies at the School of Humanities and Sciences at Stanford University. He studies and teaches about development and underdevelopment, with a particular interest in education and with a primary geographic focus on Africa. He has recently co-written a report for the Expert Group for Aid Studies entitled Capturing Complexity and Context, Evaluating Aid to Education. Joel Samoff, welcome to Fresh Ed. Thank you, Will. Billions of dollars every year are spent on development assistance or aid. Um, so how, how is aid evaluated? How do we know how that money is being spent and the effectiveness of that money? In the current era, every aid program requires an evaluation that has become standard practice. So every allocation, whether it's the United States or England or the European Union or the World Bank, requires an evaluation of some sort. So in principle, there's a pretty direct way to make that assessment. In practice, it is the aid providers who are also making an independent judgment about how well they're doing it, whatever they think they're trying to do. And that likely has more impact than the formal evaluations. And so what what are the evaluations for? To look at the specification of the evaluations, you would think that they serve multiple purposes. Think about the aid relationship as a whole. Aid is intended as a transfer of resources from a provider to a recipient. The provider is nearly always a country. There may be an intermediary so that, for example, Sweden outroutes part of its aid through UNESCO. Uh, But the provider, the initial provider, is almost always a country. The recipient is formally generally a country. Uh, And in that uh, relationship in the development of an evaluation, the claim is, or the expectation is, that the evaluation will serve multiple purposes. It will help the funding agency know where its money has gone. It will help the funding agency have some confidence that it was spent for the purposes that were intended. It will help the funding agency see that the reporting that was required or the measurements that were required or the assessments that were required were actually accomplished. In principle, the evaluation should also be of use to those who are the recipients. And recipients generally in education are a 
a government that is a ministry of education, but then ultimately there's a set of schools or a set of teachers or a set of textbook publishers or somebody who is responsible for doing whatever the tasks are that are being funded. And in the, expect in the stated expectations, evaluations should be of use to all of those people, that is, from one end of the process to the other, from the provider to the recipients. In practice, for the most part, evaluations are done in ways that serve the needs of the providers, not the needs of the recipients, and the specific need of the providers to justify what they've done. So that in uh, essentially all countries, the aid agency must report either directly to a ministry or sometimes directly to a parliament about what it's done. And that's the, that's the, to the extent to which they're used, that becomes the main use of evaluations. We should, I think, back up a step to note that the responses I'm offering or the comments I'm offering are drawn heavily from a synthesis of evaluations of aid to education in poor countries around the world uh, that was commissioned by a group in Sweden that I did with uh, two graduate student colleagues at Stanford. So the comments I'm making are based not only on many years of work on aid and evaluations of aid, but an explicit synthesis of evaluations undertaken over the past decade. So you were just saying earlier that um the the evaluations are are in practice they're not really that useful for those receiving the money rather than those providing the money is that that's right the evaluations in general are done in a way that meet the needs of the providers and don't meet the needs of the recipients and in the simplest form if you look at the evaluations they're written in a way think of an evaluation of aid to uh, teacher education or to assist preschool teachers in developing new pedagogical skills. The, the evaluations are written by experts in evaluation generally for the aid providers and are not written in a form that is readily comprehensible to those who are the recipients of the aid. So notwithstanding the stated expectations, in practice, there's very little way for the recipients to use the evaluations. And for the providers, you know, presumably a lot of these countries that are giving money to, they're giving money to multiple countries. Do, is there a level of learning about uh, the practice of, say, educational development and then trying to replicate some of these projects based on the evaluations in other countries? In the era we live now, there's a great deal of attention to what's called evidence-based policy and evidence-based practice. So the presumption is that if we are successful in getting good evidence about what was done and therefore what accomplished its objectives and what did not, that can then help to shape whatever is the next decision about policy and about practice. In the way in which it unfolds, however, evaluations are mostly internal documents commissioned by funding agencies. They are reports to the funding agencies, and although, uh, well, sometimes they're kept in a kind of confidential mode for concern about the politics of showing, of reporting on things that haven't gone well, uh, for the most part they're accessible, formally accessible, but, or formally public, but not easily accessed. They're the property of a funding agency and of a ministry of education, 
And unless you know that the evaluation has been done and that it has what it's called, it would be very hard for anybody else to find it. So in that respect, there's very little mechanism for sharing, not only across agencies, but even often within agencies. One of the things we did in the study was to spend a bit of time talking with agencies about how they use evaluations. And we found, uh, and I have found over my work in evaluations over two decades, that there is very little internal learning uh, within agencies about the, from the evaluations that are undertaken and even less across agencies. And if you think about that, there, there, are, um, there is a pretty good literature on what is problematic about aid and what's striking about that is that the identified problems persist. And one of the problems that's regularly identified is that the officers who are responsible for a particular aid program are rarely in place long enough to see the end of whatever it is they've helped to organize the funding for. And their successors um, need, in order to make their own careers, need their own projects. So Officer A has a project in country X and uh, is develops a reputation in part based on the quality in some sense of that program. When Officer A moves on and is succeeded by Officer B, Officer B has to develop her own programs. She will not get promoted on the basis of follow-up work on Officer A's programs. And therefore, there is a structured disincentive or a structured uh, pressure uh, not to be very attentive to the previous experience and therefore not to learn from that experience. And so hence, these evaluations that get done basically sit in a place that are actually quite hard to find and locate and read and perhaps learn from. Well, yes and no. The evaluations are completed. They're submitted to the whoever commissioned them, normally the funding agency. Occasionally, it's the Ministry of Education in a recipient country. Uh, At that point, they are documents that belong to whoever it is who commissioned them. They are often formally public, so certainly for the Scandinavian countries, for example, the evaluations are all public, and it's certainly possible for you or for me or for anyone else, if you know about it, to go and request a copy of the evaluation, and increasingly they're available online. Uh, So it's possible to get access to them with some effort, but it requires uh, prior knowledge that there was a project, that the project had an evaluation, that the evaluation was completed, that it's gone through its review process, and that it's now available. So we've gained ground over time. They used to be much more difficult to get at. Now, if you work at it, you can get to the evaluations. Right, but you still have to do quite a lot of work to to uncover these documents. Well, yes, they're generally not published, and as evaluators often point out, in the work that they're required to do to do the evaluation, they don't have very much time to turn the evaluation into an academic article, even if they are themselves academics. It's uncommon for an evaluation to result in an academic article. So how how do these evaluations, like what sort of methods are these evaluations using after you've studied evaluations and aid for, for many years now? So in general, what what's the preferred method? 
The funding agencies start with the notion that they want to know what works, and therefore they want to be able to use what works, the knowledge of what works, to shape future programs. And so they're asking that question. What's happened over the in the in that realm in the aid world is a, a an inclination, a strong preference to uh, point to evidence and evidence that comes from systematic inquiry of some sort or other. One way to think about that is in order to participate in a discussion to make the case to support one program or strategy or project over another, you need to be able to begin a sentence by saying, research shows that, and then you have to complete the sentence with some pointing to some research that you think shows something that is uh, whatever it is you're trying to support. And so there is this emphasis on evidence-based work, evidence-based policy, evidence-based uh, evacuation, <laughs> evidence-based practice. Uh, and that then has followed a fairly, fairly narrow notion of what constitutes relevant evidence. And so if you think about what's happened in the social sciences in general, uh, that is reflected in the aid world in this attention to evaluations. And so there is a, a, a disinclination to do the kind of, to draw, to gather the kind of evidence that would be, for example, participants' reports on their experiences uh, or evidence that is generated by participants working as evaluators, that is, those at the bottom end of the aid chain. And much more inclination to do what is now regarded as standard social science, which is a large scale study of some sort or other, usually focused on what's called impact and often involving some kind of controlled comparison, maybe a randomized controlled trial. And that's regarded as, by many people, as the strongest evidence that could be presented. So in the statement, research shows that if at that point one can point to an impact assessment, and particularly an impact assessment with a controlled trial, then that is deemed to be more persuasive than other kinds of evidence. In our work, we are in the work that we've done, uh, we find we are skeptical of those claims and skeptical of the role of, or we don't find persuasive, the argument that impact assessments with controlled trials uh, are the only useful way of evaluating aid-supported projects. Indeed, we find that there is some role for that sort of evaluation, but probably a modest role in a limited number of, of evaluations. Why is random controlled trials, why are they so attractive for this evidence-based policymaking or practice or evaluation? There is, the starting point of all that is a significant influence from the health sector. And so in the health sector, as I'm sure you and others are aware, uh, the, uh, what's considered to be the absolute standard way to assess whether or not a new drug is effective at doing what it's doing is to do a double-blind randomized controlled trial in which not only the participants but the doctors who are overseeing it don't know who's getting the new drug and who's getting the compared drug. And so there is a, an effort to try to reproduce that sort of arrangement in education, which, uh, in our view, doesn't work very well. Uh, that, the, the, that is intended to try to deal with what is common in education, that is, 
that every outcome that one can measure has multiple causes. And so often people use, for example, scores on an examination as an outcome measure. Does reading type, reading strategy A work better than reading strategy B? How do we know? Well, we'll use reading strategy A in one place and reading strategy B in another, another school and then look at the exam scores of the students in the two schools. And if the exam scores of the student in the school where reading strategy A was employed are significantly better than the exam scores of the students where reading strategy B was employed, we can reasonably, in this view, conclude that reading strategy A is better than reading strategy B. The problem with that for educators is that examinations have many Examination results have many sources, and in the case of an examination of reading skills, the reading strategy employed in the classroom in the year or years preceding the examination may be only one of many influences on the reading score, on this examination scores in the end. And so the notion is that these controlled trials, and especially randomized controlled trials, can uh, gain ground in eliminating what are thought to be alternative causal explanations in, and narrow attention to the one that is being assessed or being evaluated. Mostly, we think that doesn't work very well. And we, uh, there's several reasons why it doesn't work very well. One is randomized controlled trials are very expensive, so you can't do very many of them. Uh, I've heard now several times among recipients of foreign aid in Africa the argument that why should we spend 3 or 4 or 5% of the aid budget on evaluations, hire three more teachers instead? And that will have a much better impact on outcomes than more expensive evaluations. A second problem is that randomization in education is generally either not feasible or extraordinarily difficult. There are practical problems, there are political problems, there are ethical problems in trying to randomize the introduction of, in my example, the new strategy for teaching reading or teaching mathematics uh, and trying to do what the researchers or the evaluators would call holding everything else constant, basically saying to teachers, don't change anything. We're, we only want the change that we're trying to measure. Don't do anything else different. And in practice in education, that doesn't work very well. We want people to continue to experiment and evolve and all of that. Uh, there are also political issues, and that is the people who, who are responsible for education uh, may make decisions about where to introduce new strategies and where not that don't fit very well with the evaluation strategy. Uh, the findings that come out of those uh, controlled trials are generally very inattentive to context. And Yet we know well that it may be that the context in which a new strategy is introduced is far more important than the strategy itself. So, for example, introducing a new strategy in a school which is fairly well-resourced uh, and then trying to compare that with the introduction of a strategy in some other school that's less well-resourced is then it's difficult to know whether it's the school itself that's the difference in, that leads to the difference in exam scores or the new reading strategy. And while the evaluators will try to what they call hold constant the factors they think are important, there are always choices being made about which factors are important to hold constant because it's never possible to have two uh, 
the equivalent of two experimental labs or two lab-like settings, laboratory-like settings in which to do the comparison. The real-world settings are never that similar. And therefore, the evaluators always have to make choices about what to try to make similar or hold similar and what to ignore. And we also found in our review that there are there have been some very careful reviews of reviews, that is, reviews of evaluations, reviews of reviews of evaluations, people who have sought to look at impact assessments with randomized controlled trials. And if you look at three or four efforts to do that, you find that they come to very different conclusions about what works and what doesn't work. So what one would expect to lead to consensus, that is, the same approach, in practice has led to uh, discordant findings and discordant conclusions. It has mostly to do with which study is given greater weight and which study is given less weight. But the outcome doesn't help us understand better on the initial question, what is more and less effective? I just, you know, I just keep coming back to quest <clears throat> the question of why. Why are random controlled trials seen as as the the method to use in evaluations of educational development well in addition to the uh, in addition to the influence of the health sector in addition to the general notion of science there is uh, th that has influenced the how one goes about generating evidence there is a strong notion of uh, detachment there is an effort to define objectivity as non-involvement or detachment. And so there is a kind of medical metaphor in which people are looking at education systems in Africa. There is an external diagnostician, generally an external funding agency and its representatives, who are assessing what goes well and what doesn't go well in an education system in Africa, for example. And then, having made that assessment, prescribing some remedy, often a foul-tasting remedy that the country is required to swallow. But the notion is that the diagnostician should be external to the environment, that being a participant in the environment can be corrupting, and that therefore a, an impact assessment with a randomized controlled trial is intended to uh, reduce the role of the evaluator uh, reduce the possibility that the evaluator will contribute a bias or a tilt in the evaluation in one direction or another. In our assessment, the cost of that is the loss of context-specific information and the loss of the insights of the participants in whatever it is that has been the, uh, the aid-funded project that is being evaluated. So the, the, uh, whatever gain there might be in limiting uh, evaluator bias, there is a much bigger loss. And the loss reduces the quality and utility of the information that's generated. So presumably evaluations have been conducted on educational projects since educational projects and aid has, has happened. What was the method of evaluation before random control trials became so predominant? If you go far enough back in the early days of foreign aid, so back basically to the early days of, I'm most familiar in a longer history with the Africa data. Uh, if you go back to the evaluations of uh, education projects in 
the early era of foreign aid to education in Africa. And Evaluation was an expert who was sent out by the funding agency to look at things and who wrote a report. Or it was sometimes the representative of the funding agency in the country in which the project was being implemented who wrote a report. So there were an expert observer kind of evaluation. Uh, there is a bit of history of evaluations in which there is an effort to pull together some external observers and some participants in the project and to draw evaluative insight from that process. But fairly quickly, the shift has been toward external evaluators. And even those funding agencies that had their own well-developed evaluation departments have now largely shifted to what they term outsourcing. That is, they hire somebody else to do the evaluation. So Sweden, for example, which had a very thorough and well-respected evaluation department in the Swedish aid agency, has transformed the evaluation department into a unit that monitors evaluations, that, uh, that commissions evaluations, and then monitors the evaluations that are done by the people who are hired to do that. And so in the, in the current era, there's generally a published specification of what is sought, and evaluators or evaluation firms these days respond uh, and then either win or don't win the contract to do the evaluation. So there's a whole evaluation industry, it sounds like. There is a very significant evaluation industry, and that itself we think is problematic. Uh, not that the people who are the evaluators are themselves not competent, generally we think they are, but they are now embedded in a process that requires a continuing flow of commissions in order to fund the company that is doing the evaluations. And that then creates a, a momentum uh, in which it, the, the company must be attentive to whether or not it is uh, doing things that will reduce its reputation or damage its reputation or undermine its reputation with the funding agency. It has to be worried constantly whether it will get the next contract. It also uh, means that there is very has resulted in very little self-reflection among evaluators. So using the examples I used before, an evaluation that is commissioned to see whether or not a particular strategy of teaching mathematics is better than some other strategy or new textbooks or some way of organizing classrooms or some other pedagogical innovation is worth pursuing uh, may focus on that but doesn't ask many questions about the nature of the evaluation itself or about the aid relationship or about the role of aid in whether or not a funded initiative is more or less successful. Are universities tied up into this aid industry that you describe? Universities are tied in several ways, uh, more direct and indirect. On the African side, to use the African examples again, where funding for education research is very limited, researchers in African universities find themselves pushed to become consultants to funding agencies that will provide support that they can then use to do research. 
And when researchers become consultants, there are consequences for the research process. So that's the, a major effect on the African side of the relationship. Universities in the providing countries, that is the countries that are providing the foreign aid, are often the source of the evaluators or at least some of the evaluators or some people who participate in evaluation teams. And that then becomes a source of revenue both for those individuals but occasionally for the university as well. And the university may then find itself rather like the private companies motivated to continue that revenue stream and to worry about losing that revenue stream through the behavior, the reports, the findings, the presentations of its evaluators. So thinking about all of these, well, you know, problems that you've pointed to in the, the aid evaluation, what sort of recommendations would you have going forward? Like, how would you like to see the aid industry change? Well, now you're asking a question about the aid industry or aid in general. And that's a different set of work that I've done that's focused on the aid process. But let's talk for the moment about evaluations. And it seems to us that from our work, it's very clear that what's needed is a set of evaluation strategies or in what's more common terminology now, a portfolio of evaluation strategies so that when a funding agency has agreed to support a particular initiative, rather than using a kind of standard, this is the standard evaluation and we use it for all, all aid-funded projects, the agency can have, a, 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 can have four or five different sorts of evaluative, evaluative approaches and say that approach B is the one that makes sense in this circumstance, not approach D or E or F or G or R or Q. So one finding, one observation, one recommendation is that funding agencies need a set of strategies. And be, second, they need to be willing to draw from that set the particular approach that makes sense in the, most, in, in the, in the current circumstance. A second observation is that the evaluations, while they do need to serve the purpose for the funding agency of showing how the money was spent and was it spent in the way intended, the funding agencies, if they're serious about accomplishing whatever it is that they're funding, need to reorient much more of the evaluation process toward outcomes that are useful to those who are the recipients of the funding, not just the providers of the funding, but the recipients of the funding. Because unless the evaluations serve the recipients of the funding, uh, and unless they are perceived by the recipients of the funding as evaluations that they have some influence in, some control over, some role in, some participation in, then there will be a kind of an external uh, event that the, from the participants' perspective, it's, it's almost like something we have to endure. Think of yourself as a teacher in a, in a, in a setting where you're getting some money to, do, to introduce new textbooks. Part of the cost of getting the money is that periodically somebody will show up to ask you how well you're doing and to administer a questionnaire and maybe to measure some, to administer a test. And that's just the cost of doing business. It's not your evaluation as a teacher. It's not an evaluation that you had much role in. And it's not an evaluation that you can use to do much to improve whatever it is you're doing, new, changing your way of teaching mathematics or introducing a new textbook. So... 
Uh, one of the strong findings and recommendations from our work is that much more of the evaluation process needs to be attentive to the needs of the recipients, and that means there needs to be a significant shift in the direction of increasing what in the aid world is called the ownership, just as the aid project, that is the aid-funded project, needs to be owned by local people, the ones who are administering it or implementing it in order to be successful, so too the evaluation needs to have a strong degree of local ownership to be effective for those who are the recipients of the funding. And that leads then to another recommendation, and that is there's much more room for participatory evaluations uh, than is currently the case, and that is in some ways the opposite end of a continuum from randomized controlled trials where the role of the participants is, is uh, to be held constant rather than, than uh, encouraged. Uh, in our reading of what's happening and what will be useful, it seems clear to us that uh, increased, uh, uh, there, is an inc there needs to be an increased role for participatory evaluations and while there is a risk that that will have its own, uh, might have its own bias or might have its own tilt on the outcome of the evaluations, uh, that we think can be managed in, uh, in pretty straightforward ways. And that the benefits of doing that are far outweigh whatever the risks of that bias are. The bias can be managed, but even if some bias persists, that's less problematic than not having the participants involved in the evaluation. Are you, are you hopeful that aid evaluation will move in this direction? Huh, am I hopeful? Well, uh, I think the pressures on the funding agencies are very powerful not to move in that direction. And so I guess in the short term, I'm not very optimistic about progress in those directions. In the longer term, I think it's likely that there will emerge, which hasn't emerged yet so very much, but will emerge stronger pressure from the recipients of the aid funding for a revision of the evaluation process. There have been every few years major conferences about how to make aid work better, and mostly they don't have much impact on aid, but they have some. And my expectation is that in some future conference, there will be greater attention to evaluation driven by concerns of the recipients, which will then push the providers to uh, reorient a bit, at least, the evaluations to be more useful to the recipients. Well, Joel Samoff, thank you so much for joining Freshhead. It was really a pleasure to talk today. Thank you for inviting me. Joel Samoff is a consulting professor at Stanford University. You can find a link to his co-written report on evaluating aid to education at freshedpodcast.com. FreshEd is brought to you by the Globalization and Education Special Interest Group of the Comparative and International Education Society. FreshEd's assistant producer is Sherry Yang. Original music for FreshEd was created by Digital Primate. Please note that opinions expressed on FreshEd are solely those of the host or the guest interviewed, not CIES or the Globalization and Education SIG, which take no institutional position. If you've liked what you've heard, please rate us on iTunes. It helps. 
Fresh Ed is made possible through listener donations. Please consider becoming a member of Fresh Ed by visiting freshedpodcast.com support. Thanks for listening. I'm Will Brem, and I'll see you next week.